Good morning. My name is Fred Sanders. I've been a member here for about 16 years, and it is a privilege to preach to you this morning from this section of Mark, Mark 13, that Trevor just read to us. Uh, really an amazing passage. Uh, I don't know if you like the book of Revelation. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. A lot of people don't like the book of Revelation, and the reason a lot of people don't like the book of Revelation is because a lot of other people do like the book of Revelation. They, they like it a little bit too much, and it puts the rest of us off of it a little bit. Because um, most of us don't want to look or act or sound like those end times prophecy people. Uh, I grew up in a church full of end times prophecy people, love them to death. Uh, they were serious, godly Christian people. They loved each other, they fed the hungry, they told non-Christians about the love of Jesus Christ. That was great. And if you mentioned a prophetic topic, their eyes would bug out just a little bit too much, and they were all carrying the same study Bible, and uh, they had a tape series they wanted you to listen to, and they would make a chart just at the drop of a hat. You just ask any question, and they would immediately draw a chart, or some of them already had a fold-out chart in their Bible. And so it was just kind of that atmosphere. Um, And because of that, a lot of the rest of us say, well, I don't want to look like that, so I will just utterly ignore all prophetic things anywhere in Scripture. If I were in charge, I'm not running for this office, but if I were in charge of the Department of Hell whose job was keeping Christians from hearing the whole Word of God, this is how I would do it. I'd recruit a small group of people just fanatically obsessed with prophecy, and then I'd use them as a leverage to scare off all the other believers. It's a brilliant move if you think about it, though it's, once you see through it, 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 it's very simple and silly. What a ridiculous reason to ignore parts of Scripture because the people you don't want to be like, like those parts. It's, very, it's, a very, it's, a, it's kind of a Bible fashion way of thinking about things or like music. Like I used to be into that band, but I don't like the people who are into that band, so now I'm not into that band. Um, I, would u- I would use prophecy to guarantee that the more majority of believers make too little of it. And I think that's mostly where we are these days, depending on the circles you run in. Most of us are in danger of making too little of the prophetic element of Scripture. So we keep the book of Revelation back here where it belongs at the very end of the Bible, where you only have to visit optionally, occasionally. It's right, it's like right by the book of Maps. It's almost not even in there. Um, <laughs> because it's full of weird and wild stuff. It's got bowls of wrath. It's got like dragons. It's got the mark of the beast. It's got um, angels that that reap grain, but the grains are souls. It's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, Stars fall out of the sky. Comets strike the ocean. It's it's all in there, every every bit of it. People who avoid it, avoid it because they don't want to be weird Christians, right? They just want to love Jesus. We just want to obey Jesus, and we just want to listen to his words. And then we get to Mark 13, as we just heard from Trevor, where our friend Jesus, who isn't supposed to be weird, starts talking exactly like the book of Revelation. You can't trust anybody these days. (laughs) Now, here's why this is a good thing that Jesus in Mark 13 sounds like the book of Revelation. It's because all of that end time stuff, or the big fancy words eschatology, that's somewhere early in your bulletin, you get a little definition of eschatology, the study or teaching about the end times. All of that is really about Jesus anyway. It always was, it always is, it is when Jesus is talking. What we're gonna look at in Mark 13 this morning is 
the portrayal, the self-portrayal of Jesus as our prophet and priest and king. We're going to know more about him as a result of this. It's not about filling in all the little details on your prophecy chart, though a couple details would be good. It's not about reading the newspaper the right way so you can play pin the tail on the Antichrist. It's none of that, right? It's the unveiling or making known of who Jesus Christ is. You know, the title of Revelation is really the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? It's, a, it's an unveiling or making known of who he is. So that's what we're going to look at. Jesus as our prophet, priest, and king. The emphasis uh, is going to fall on him being a prophet because you heard the passage we're looking at. It, it's a prophecy passage. So we'll spend most of our time on that, and then we'll talk about the revelation of his uh, priesthood and kingship also in this same passage. But look at this amazing passage. Here's the setup. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see all these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, there's a lot going on just right there. First of all, whichever disciple it is who speaks, and Mark doesn't tell us which one it is, all of Jesus' disciples are probably pretty easily impressed They're all from up north, which is not the cool place to be from in Israel. Uh, You're supposed to be from down south. That's where the movers and the shakers are. Uh, They don't get to see the temple very often, way up there. So Jesus is kind of playing it cool, uh, partly because Jesus is cool and partly because Mary and Joseph brought him to the temple every year, Luke tells us. So what's the uh, football advice? When you get to the end zone, act like you've been there before. So Jesus is, is having a great time there. But his friends are craning their necks and looking around and taking photos or whatever the first century equivalent of that is. And they're saying, golly, we ain't got nothing like this back up in Galilee, do we? No way, man. Those are some big rocks that thing is made of. They're, they're just, they're easily impressed. They're actually too easily impressed. What they're seeing is big, shiny rocks, but Jesus has vision that is seeing something much bigger, much shinier, and much more important. Secondly, even though they are easily impressed, this Jerusalem temple at this stage in history actually is pretty impressive. Um, It's not just the little building that Zerubbabel was able to put up when the Jews first returned from exile. This is Herod's ambitious 80-year building project that expanded it to something like the middle fourth of the city of Jerusalem. Rabbis had a saying, he who has not seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building in his life. And the rocks they're admiring um, are apparently 40 feet long and 20 feet wide. That's a big rock. That's impressive. And they're probably covered with gold, the ones that are, that are up in the front. Um, the Jewish historian Josephus describes the temple this way at this time period. He said it had everything you needed to astound the mind and the eye. On sunny days, the golden surface, and here's a quote from Josephus, the golden surface radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as if from solar rays. And people approaching the building from a distance said that it looked like a snow-covered mountain right in the middle of the city. So it's pretty cool. But even at that, Jesus is seeing beyond it to something vastly bigger and more important. So they're still too easily impressed because Jesus doesn't just see the spectacle right there in front. He sees the whole sacred history that led up to that temple being there at all, and he sees its future. That's what he's looking at here. And it's because of what he's seeing that they are not seeing that he says, you see these great buildings? There won't be one stone left on another and that won't be thrown down. 
But then here's the third thing that's going on. Last week, you remember Eric's sermon, he, we looked at Jesus teaching inside of that temple compound. He was just in there teaching, and now he's out across from it looking back at it. Um, or they, they just come out of it, and they're about to cross over from it. There, remember what Jesus was doing? He was watching a whole parade of people putting big money into the treasury, and instead of being wowed by that, Jesus was wowed by a very poor widow who dropped in two tiny little coins worth a penny. Remember he said, forget all the big important money, changing hands here. The most important exchange that happened here was what that widow just gave. She gave out of her need. She gave her heart. That's the crucial thing. Um, Her tiny coins, stay with me here, disciples, those tiny coins she put in are bigger and more valuable than the giant dumps of gold that the other people were putting in. And the disciples go, whoa, that is deep, Jesus. That is, that is really, man, you're messing with my head. That is profound. Then they walk outside, and the very next thing they say is, whoa, check out all the giant gold, right? <laughs> you can just imagine Jesus stopping the car, pulling it over, and saying, what did I just say? <laughs> Look, it's simple. The old lady with the tiny coins, that's the cool part, right? The giant gold is not the cool part. She's like a metaphor. She's a picture of true devotion in the middle of a Jerusalem that has forgotten how to be devoted to God and is over-invested in externals and thinks they're special. Like, that was the whole point. Did Did you get that? I thought you guys were with me on this. Jesus has invested a lot of time and energy in teaching these guys, and he is officially running out of instructional time. This is, in fact, his public teaching ministry is already over. He's not going to be teaching in public anymore. It's done. We're at the end of the gospel. It's Wednesday of Holy Week, and he's dying on Friday. It's like I told you something now and said, you really need to resolve that by Tuesday because you will be dead, right? He's, he's only got a little more teaching time. He's already spent a lot with him. He's got the tiniest bit of time left with him, and he's not going to waste a single word talking about tourist sites. Jesus' mental horizon is so filled with ultimate things that he can't be impressed with temporal things close up to him. So you just have to cut Jesus some slack and excuse him if he sounds like a little bit of a killjoy here. Hey, Jesus, check out this awesome church. And Jesus replies, yeah, it's all going to burn. Right? <laughs> hey, hey, Jesus, let's go look at the Getty Center. Pretty cool, huh? Mm, but when the big one hits, it's all coming down. And the big one's going to hit soon. Right? Oh. Hey, Jesus, how about that Disney concert hall? I am the symphony and the architecture. (laughs) Now, this might take Jesus off your list of fun guys to take a road trip with. But here's the thing. He talks like this because he is a prophet. This is just how prophets talk. You know, we talked about ignoring the book of Revelation. There's also the way the Old Testament ends where we stacked up a bunch of prophetic books. And those guys all talk like that. They're not uh, cheerful thought for the day kind of authors. And it's a pretty big chunk of your Bible. Jesus is speaking in prophetic mode. There's a word of encouragement coming, but things get really bad before you get to that word of encouragement um, because he's a prophet. This is uh, point one. When they leave the temple, verse 3, they leave the temple complex, they walk out across a valley and up a little mountain right there across from town. And then verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, is this a good question or a bad question the disciples ask him? We saw that they just blew it with the whole how important are big golden objects uh, question. Uh, he asked this, when will these things, they ask him this, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? 
This time we know who's talking to him. It's Peter, James, John, and Andrew. These are the first four disciples he called back in chapter one when they were just all fishing in Galilee. If anybody's gonna get it, these guys are gonna get it. Three of them were there on the mountain of transfiguration. One of them recently said to him, you are the Christ. He's committed to getting through to these guys. He's not playing games with them. He's teaching them prophetically. But notice that the question they ask him is actually two questions. One, when will these things be? And two, what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? When they use the phrase, all these things, that's a clue that they have a lot of stuff bundled together in their minds. Remember that all Jesus said was the temple would be destroyed. But now they're asking him about all these things. Did you see, they've got a whole mental catalog of things that are gonna be accomplished. They've got a lot of expectations. The disciples probably thought that the destruction of the temple and all these end times things, those go together as one big item. The fall of the temple was part of an end times bundle for them as a package deal. And so Jesus the prophet, in order to communicate effectively with these inquiring minds, has a major task. He has to pry these two questions apart and make a distinction between the fall of the temple on the one hand and all these things on the other. See, when somebody asks you a complex question, uh, a double-barreled question, and demands a yes or no answer, you can't just answer it until you do some preliminary work of unbundling or disentangling the two questions. You know the classic old question, have you quit beating your dog yet, yes or no? You can't say yes, because that implies that you used to beat your dog, which you didn't. But you can't say no, because that means not only did you used to beat your dog, but you still do, and you have no intention of stopping. You have to take the two questions apart first. First of all, in the past, I have not beaten my dog, and second, therefore, in the present, I have no need to stop beating my dog. Now, there are sneakier forms of the question that can get by you, things like, do you want to go on a date with me, and what time should I pick you up? Well, that, let's, let's delink those. Let's, let's, let's take those one at a time. How about this one? Will you be a nice person and lend me 20 bucks? Yes and no, right? Okay. Like, I will be a nice person, and that will not involve me lending you 20 bucks. Or here's one I saw, lawyer uh, cross-examining a defendant. Instead of murdering your neighbor, did you go home and bake a cherry pie? No, no, I did not. So you admit you murdered your neighbor. What Jesus does in this chapter, 13, is take two events from two different future times and shows that they're not one thing, they're connected, but they're not the same thing. So the first event is the destruction of the temple, and the fall of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is sitting here sometime around 33 AD. He's making specific claims about the future, and those claims come true within the generation that's listening to him. So some of the things in the speech that Jesus gives here, this Olivet Discourse in Mark 13, are about that, an event future to him, but now in our past. For instance, in the years immediately after this speech, there are false messiahs running around making claims, and as for the mysterious abomination that makes desolate, there are several candidates for that. In the year 40, Emperor Caligula, you remember this guy, he kind of gets the prize for worst of the Roman emperors. He just sort of, for fun, made his horse a senator. That sort of corrupted the political process. Lots of other morally reprobate things. Caligula had a big idea. He threatened to put statues of himself in the temple of the Jews. Right? That would certainly be a desolating abomination. Um, all this kind of stuff goes on. It's a terrible time of persecution. And then by the year 70, it's actually all a done deal. The Roman armies of Titus march against Jerusalem and they destroy it. 
Josephus, again, the Jewish historian, tells us that at the height of the siege, the Romans were crucifying 500 Jewish rebels a day. And when the city fell, they still had 100,000 of them left over to sell into slavery that they hadn't killed. It's a terrible fall of a city. It all came true. The temple was utterly destroyed right down to the foundation. Not, stone, not one stone was left on another, just as Jesus the prophet accurately and successfully predicted. Several parts of Jesus' message here made perfect sense to people alive at that time. For example, the stuff about not going back into the house to get your stuff. In general, in the ancient world, with a walled city, if an army's coming, the smart thing to do is go into the city. But when the army is Roman or when a prophet who knows things tells you not to go back into the city, instead you say, with a tip from the prophet, I will not go in there because it won't do any good. That city's coming down. I will head for the hills instead. And he even says things like, let those who are in Judea flee into the mountains. Now, that's geographically precise. You see that? That's not about the whole world. That's about that particular place. It's like saying, let those in La Habra flee to Carbon Canyon, right? That's, that's not about everything. But other parts of this message don't fit back then and aren't fulfilled in that particular region in that particular time or at 70 AD. Um, they're bigger than the fall of one city, no matter how bad the fall of that city was. They're too big, so look at verse 19. In those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. Now, I believe the fall of Jerusalem in 70 was terrible, but this sounds bigger than that. Look at 24 especially. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in his glory. Now, some of these things Jesus describes apply to both their future and to our future. Things like the persecution of believers or the deception of false Christ. So we've got some things that are only, they were in the future of Jesus' listeners, but they're in our past. We've got some things that Jesus the prophet talked about that are still in our future. And then there's some things that could be either. Um, Jesus says in verse 11, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you're gonna say. Uh, say whatever is given you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. These are precious words about people who testify about Jesus Christ under pressure in any time and place. They applied back then, they apply now. They applied to Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and they apply to you when under pressure you testify about Jesus Christ. It's a promise that the Holy Spirit is speaking through you and bearing witness about who Christ is. So there's a shifting back and forth between 70 AD, our past, and our ultimate future, the big things that are still gonna happen. And Jesus seems to have two decks of cards, and the thing is, once you distinguish them, then you realize he's dealing out both of them. Now, the problem is I can't go into a lot of detail on any verse here, because any passage we look at takes about 12 minutes to unpack and talk about. But what you gotta bear, and sometimes Jesus goes from 70 AD to the ultimate future in the middle of a verse, and so he's kind of switching it back and forth. But here's the thing, he's, now that he's got these two events apart, he's distinguished them and he's using them now sort of like the lenses of a telescope. You know, you've got a big objective lens, the really impressive lens that's out there doing most of the work, but then you've got the eyepiece lens back here, which fixes the focal distance and lets you actually look at the thing. Uh, so you could say the little event is the little lens and you're using that to look through at the big event. And using those, you're seeing this ultimate thing. Why is Jesus talking like that? Why is he um, distinguishing these events and then using them together to get at the bigger picture? 
It's because he's a prophet. It's because prophecy works that way. Look at any prophet you want in the Old Testament, or as Joe Henderson calls it, most of the Bible, right? And you'll see they all look to the future and describe something soon and something final, right? Something up close and something way far away. Prophets always see one thing against the background of another, and they always describe them at once so that they interpenetrate like that. Why? Because when the Holy Spirit speaks through a prophet to teach about the end times, the prophet's giving a special and strange kind of knowledge. Prophecy is not just like a magic trick that you can do where you predict a future event. It's a spiritual insight that somehow seems to open up the tap of the future and let things through. Uh, that, sounds like, that sounds like a bad movie or something, but it's like the bit of knowledge you get about a future event in the near future seems to be pushed out by the force of this apocalyptic end times, let me show you the big picture revelation. You open the tap and Isaiah starts talking and one minute he's talking about what's about to happen to Israel and the next minute he's talking about the end of the world and it all comes out like that. Pick a prophet, they all do it. It's in Joel, it's in Amos. I can't promise Obadiah, but you know, it's a short book. Okay, why is this going on? Jesus the prophet speaks like all true prophets do and prophetic knowledge is just kind of weird that way. When things are really far away from you, they seem kind of flattened out. They, kind of, they all go together. Um, when you get up close, they start to come apart and you can see things a little bit differently. When I was a kid, I would look up at the mountains and I would, I would see them in the distance and I would want to go there. And from a distance, what a mountain range looks like is a flat blue shape off in the distance. It's like a felt cutout that somebody put on a felt board. Um, the top of, edge of it is a wavy line and a serrated kind of a movement, a Sierra, that's that word. And you think, I want to go to the peak right there. And when I'm on that peak right there, I'll look to my left and I'll see that blue peak over there and I'll look to my right and I'll see that blue peak. That'll be cool. And then you go there and it's actually a long, boring drive through foothills winding around in a way that doesn't seem mountainy at all. And it goes on and on. And when you finally get to a mountain peak, you get out and you say, now I'm gonna look to my left and right and see those other peaks and you realize, they're not there at all. In fact, you already drove past one of them and the other one's still much, much further on and way bigger than you thought. It was flattened out from a distance, but it opens up. Why? Because you're inside of it. You find out these things aren't even beside each other strictly. They're, they're, they're a big complex of things that can be distinguished. When you're inside the mountain range, in one sense, you're right there in the mountains you saw from a distance. You succeeded. You went the place you wanted to go. But in another sense, you can't really go to the mountains you see. You don't drive up to the bottom of the mountains and bang, bump into a big blue sheet or something. Oh, wow, I'm at the bottom of the mountain. Um, this was very disappointing to me as a kid because they would take me to the mountains over and over and say, no, you're literally in the mountains. And I would say, this looks nothing like the flat blue thing with the peaks right beside each other. I got over it eventually. This is how God teaches about the future. He gives the explanation that will make sense from where you are. Think about the very first prophecy in Scripture. So not words spoken through a prophetic oracle, but God himself says in Genesis 3, uh, he says, it's bad now and it's getting worse. It doesn't start with a cheer up message. There's a word of encouragement at the end, but he says, it's gonna be a lot of work. Um, the snake is gonna have babies, but then the woman's gonna have babies and the woman's babies are gonna kill the snake's babies. And Adam and Eve say, okay, that." Sounds good. We'll be glad when that happens. Could you go into a little more detail about the woman's baby killing the snake's baby? And God says, yes, the snake will wound the heel of the human and the human will crush the head of the snake. And Adam and Eve think, okay, that is more detail. Um, and so they're looking for that. 
And then when it happens, it doesn't quite look like what you thought it might look like, you know? Um, at, God was doing a great job communicating based on available material, looking around going, well, we got like a heel and we got a snake and they know where babies come from, so I'll tell them this. And so, okay, we're going with that. Jesus the prophet had a message to give his disciples here. And what he has to do is explain in one lesson a set of things that are gonna roll out step by step. Now, looking back on it, it's easy for us to see. And in Mark's gospel, it's easy to kind of poke fun at the disciples and say, they're kind of clueless and not especially teachable. But think about how much they had to grasp. Um, They have just figured out that this man is the Messiah. All right, that is very good. But that he's gonna be killed. That's like the next verse. And they think, well, that's very, we just went from very good to very bad. But then he's going to rise from the dead. Okay, well, that's good. But then he's going to fly away into the clouds. Well, that's bad. And it's also weird. Uh, Then he's going to send the Holy Spirit. Hey, well, that's good. But then Jerusalem's going to be totally destroyed. Whoa, that's very bad. But then Jesus himself is going to come back. Yay. All right. Well, that's a lot of different events, right? It's enough to make you want some kind of a chart or a timeline, like not to be weird about it, but it it really (laughs) helps kind of organize your thoughts there. It goes like that. Um, Maybe a little bit of a chart. And if you made that chart, it would actually kind of look like a mountain range off in the distance. But once you're inside of it, it kind of opens up and you begin to see how things are distinguished. Here's another thing about eschatological knowledge. As you approach the prophesied events, certain things are going to happen that make those events start to make more sense, that make the words of the prophecy start to make more sense. It's just like the first time. Good interpreters of scripture knew a lot of things about the Messiah and what he was gonna be like, but when Jesus actually showed up and actually started doing the Messiah thing, People started reading uh, the Psalms and Isaiah and said, oh my gosh, it's all coming true in ways we never could have imagined. There's, there are words here that we've carried around for centuries and didn't know how they were gonna apply predictively, but now that he's here, we can see. It's like, they're, it's like they're time capsules that we've carried as oracles all this time, and they were, they were uh, metaphorically, they were sealed, but now they're unsealed by the events taking place. Events are going to happen in the future, which take some of the darkest and most obscure verses in Mark 13, and while they're meaningful to us now, and they are the word of God, and they're not a game God is playing with us, for the generation that's living when those things happen, it's all gonna open up and they're gonna say, have you guys looked at this verse of Mark? It all of a sudden makes lots of sense. One example would be the the abomination of desolation in verse 14. Very difficult passage. It's, It's a quotation and interpretation from Daniel And the Jews at the time of Jesus thought it had already happened. They said, yeah, that abomination of desolation stuff, that was totally Antiochus Epiphanes. He did that. He was a jerk. And then Caligula said, I'm going to put pictures of me in your holy place. And they said, more abomination of desolation. And then the generation that sees it or him take its stand in an obvious manifest way is going to say, we're back in Daniel abomination of desolation land, and this is the real deal. So there are, um, there are prophetic oracles here that we can read and make some sense of, uh, but the commentaries all disagree with each other, and you have to say, some of this is partly for us and partly for that final generation that sees it all happen. So Jesus is a prophet. He speaks prophetically here. It's great news that he predicted something that was gonna happen in his lifetime, something big, and it happened, right? That the generation listening to him said, well, we'll see if that works, and then it works. Because then he goes on to say, really huge things are going to happen. Let me tell you about the coming of the Son of Man in glory. And you think, well, he's got a pretty good track record, this prophet does. 
He, he named one thing. I have lots of opinions about who's gonna win a presidential election coming up at any given time, but I always have to remind myself, I have never been right about a presidential election. I, I think maybe accidentally I guessed one right in my adult lifetime, but uh, so it, I, even I don't take my opinions seriously, although if, if you ask me on the right day, I'll be very dogmatic about it. Oh yes, it's clearly gonna go this way, but you gotta bear in mind, I don't know what I'm talking about and I've never been right before. Uh, Jesus, on the other hand, made one big prediction which might not have come true, but did. So there's that in his favor if you're keeping score. Um, last thing on this is, does he in fact answer their question? They come with a couple of questions. The questions are kind of messed up. He has to distinguish them and then show how they relate a little bit. But the one they want to know is, when is this going to happen and what's the sign? Well, he doesn't exactly tell them what's going to happen. Down in verse 28, which I think Dave will mostly preach on next week, he says, yeah, nobody knows when this is going to happen. Okay, well, that's an answer. That, that, that is an answer to the question. Thank you. And then as for the sign, they say, what's the sign going to be? And he's, he makes a big list of stuff that's not signs. You know, well, you know, there's always wars. Don't, don't get alarmed by that. And there's earthquakes and there's famines. All that's going on. That's, that's not the sign. The only time he uses the word sign, in fact, is when he says, false Christs are going to give you false signs, so be careful. Okay, well, that too is a kind of an answer, but it's not exactly the answer they came wanting. He really does change the subject here to himself. Jesus the prophet is a unique kind of prophet. Um, he, he finally says something like, you know, the sign you're going to see is the, that what you're going to see is the coming of the Son of Man. You'll see in the clouds, like you want to know what you're going to see when you know it's all going down? You'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds in his glory. Well, that's not exactly a sign, right? That's the thing itself. <laughs> that's not, oh, how will we know when it happens? Oh, you'll see the Son of Man in his glory. Is there something we'll see the day before that? No, you'll see the Son of Man in his glory. Okay, thank you. Here's why Jesus goes there. He's a prophet. He's a good prophet. He's a successful prophet. You can trust him as a prophet. You can, you can bank on what he says. He's been right before. He'll be right the next time. But he's a special kind of prophet who gives a message with the content of himself. He is the content of his own message. He's saying, here's what's gonna happen. The Son of Man will come. Well, well that's him. So that's a funny kind of prophecy because it's about himself. No other prophet does that. Every other prophet points away from himself. This prophet ends up pointing to himself using all the language of the Old Testament. His key idea in this discourse is in the first word. Look or watch out. Other translations say, see to it, take heed, be careful, take care. Uh, elsewhere in this passage, he says, be prepared and, uh, you know, don't be deceived. He's a prophet you can trust. As a prophet, the Son of God was anointed by the Spirit of God to speak the words of the Father to us perfectly. Now, I spent the most time on prophet because this chapter is mostly about Jesus as prophet, but he's also priest and king, so he tells us in his prophecy about his work as priest and his glory as king. Remember that when he comes out of the temple, what he had been doing in that temple was he, he sat down opposite the treasury to make observations about it and pronounce a judgment about it, right? That's what we did. Eric called it people watching, but it's people watching with a purpose. It's Jesus comes in, sets up a chair, and stares right at you, and you think, I feel like I'm being watched. Well, the treasury's being watched. Jesus sees it and gives an interpretation of what's happening. Then he goes across the Mount of Olives, and he sits down opposite from the city of Jerusalem, and he sits there facing it, and his very body language is language of judgment. He's gonna make an assessment spiritually of what this thing is. It's Wednesday evening of Passion Week. 
His public ministry is over. He steps out of town and makes a statement about Jerusalem itself. His disciples are impressed by the golden rocks, but Jesus sees more. From the Mount of Olives, Jesus sees the entire biblical story. He sees the place of God among his people, and he sees the way that a holy God can come to live among sinful creatures. Here's how Jesus is more than a prophet. His message is about his own work. Everything that's about to happen is gonna happen because Jesus is offering the final and full sacrifice that's gonna reconcile God to humanity. This explains the point of his first coming, but also according to the book of Hebrews, it explains the point of his second coming. Hebrews 9.28 says, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, right? So the, prophet, the priest comes once to do the sacrifice and complete uh, our reconciliation with God, and when he comes the second time, it's to save those who trust him. You can trust Jesus as your prophet, you can trust Jesus as your priest. As we look through these last couple chapters of Mark in coming weeks, you'll see him doing his high priestly work. Even when he's on trial before the official high priest, he, has, uh, he is the real high priest doing the real work. If you look at chapter 14, verse 56, um, people are lying about him. They say that he claimed he's going to personally tear down the temple and rebuild one without using his hands, um, but their, their testimonies disagree. And the high priest asked Jesus, um, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you'll see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what, what more testimony do we need? Jesus is the priest who's going to work all of this out. As the priest, the Son of God offered a sacrifice through the Spirit to God the Father to settle our sin problem and give us access to the Holy Father in heaven. Now the high point of this message in chapter 13, in this Olivet Discourse, is what Jesus says at verse 24. The word he speaks about the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Once again, he speaks as a prophet, but what he prophesies is what he's going to do. The, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he'll send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, what is this? It's all from the book of Daniel. Um, in, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision in the night, and he hears what he sees. He says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, this, this human-shaped one, this, this son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. And this comes right after the really weird part of Daniel's dream uh, with a vision of a raging sea with wild beasts coming out of it. There's a lion with wings that stands on its hind legs and acts human. There's a bear with ribs sticking out of its mouth. There's a four-headed leopard. And then there's this really nasty-looking monster with iron teeth and ten horns. And these things just keep coming out of the sea and ruling and dominating everyone. Everyone's getting sick of it and saying, when is someone human going to come rule things? And then that's what Daniel sees is finally something human-shaped Finally, one like a son of man comes to the Almighty, to, comes to the, the Ancient of Days, and he's given dominion, and he really rules permanently. This is the human one. Jesus is saying, this is what you'll see. The son of man's gonna show up, the seed of the woman who's gonna crush the head, the head of the snake. 
This is when it all comes true. This is Psalm 110, where the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is uh, what Stephen, the first martyr, looks up into the heavens and sees in a vision. He sees Jesus at the right hand of God. This is it. This is when it's all coming true. And this is what Jesus is pointing to from local tragic events to this big ultimate future. As the king, the son of God is empowered by the spirit of God to rule all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve in the name of God. And this is in our future. One day we will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Early Christians expected the return of Christ. Paul says in Thessalonians, they turned from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Ari Torrey, the first academic dean of Biola, expected the second coming of Christ. He was looking for it every day. He said it kept him pure, it kept him focused, kept him alert. The church I grew up in, we expected the return of Jesus. We might have sometimes gotten a little bit weird, weird about it as prophecy people, but we were mostly weird like the first Christians. One commentary I was looking at said this about looking for the second coming of Christ. The commentary said, this type of thinking is difficult for modern Western people, but it seems consistent with the biblical material. <laughs> that's because that's the Bible promises that the Son of Man will come in the clouds with great power and glory. He's coming in the clouds. When I was a kid, uh, I not only thought about mountains in mentally incoherent ways, I also thought about clouds. And the main reason I thought about clouds is because I had been under this teaching, and I knew that one of these days, one of those clouds was going to be the one that the Son of the Man, the Son of Man, was coming in. Um, this kind of changes things. If you're walking around under a heaven full of clouds, uh, that you know Jesus is going to come back through one of these days. When Jesus ascended, the disciples saw him go up, and he was received into a cloud. And the angel said, why are you looking up? He's going to come back the same way he left. And so anytime I see a big cloud or a weird cloud or a funny colored cloud or a cloud that's a little too low or moving too fast, I get a little freaked out because I think that might be the one. It's like the sky is haunted, right? Like there's somebody up there and he could come down at any moment. Um, This is the ultimate future that Jesus prophesied. Jesus, the great prophet, prophesied that he would finish his work as a priest and he would return Uh, to rule as king. If I had homework to give you from Mark chapter 13, the light fluffy version would be look at clouds. But you know what I mean by that. Keep your eye on the sky because Jesus is going to return from there one day and rule. Amen.